0: Hello everybody and welcome back to What Would the Smart Party Do? And this time we'd uh, probably get some feedback of an industry luminary we have with us once again, good friend of the show, Dennis Dentwiller. How you doing Dennis?
1: Hey, how are you
0: guys doing? Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Living a dream. <laughs> and uh good as well, my good friend Baz. How you doing Baz?
2: Hello, my friend. It's a long time since we've spoken. <laughs> Isn't it just? We should do this more often seconds even <laughs> take two <laughs> don't give away your <laughs> secrets we're saving that for
0: patreon <laughs> right. anyway so before we get on to what you're working on uh, properly so to speak uh dennis sure. you've also been doing a really nice thing for the community i guess you want to call it, is uh getting people to send in their rpg products or things they've been working on and you've just done a bit of a sort of a friendly review uh, and some feedback so so what's got brought that up and, yeah. and how's that?
1: Been yeah, well, um, it's, well, one, it's, it's been going great. Uh, you know, a lot more submissions than I had imagined. I was kind of like, Hey, I'd love to take a look at what you're working on. And maybe if you want some advice, I can look at it and come up with better ways to kind of angle your product. So it might actually uh, catch on and become, you know, something bigger than it is right now. But, you know, I, I honestly told everybody I'm a very particular fellow. So my feedback is going to be very particular. It's gonna be angled in what I think I know and what I think I understand about the market. And it's going to be private. So don't worry about me getting on the internet and going, oh, by the way, I read this horrible piece of kludge by these people. Here's their Twitter handle. Tell them how their their product stinks. So, uh, and I I promised I wouldn't kind of pick favorites. So I wouldn't go, oh my God, I read this. You gotta read this. I'm not. I'm not trying to be a, a RPG kingmaker or like you know spin up new rock stars in RPG. I just kind of want to help people out who are going through the first couple products in in what may become a, a career or a past uh, like a, a a deep pastime for them, and just kind of help them over the bumps that I went through when I was younger, uh, that took me kind of trial and error to discover. Oh. People like when the page is broken up by a nice piece of art, I should probably make more art here. Uh, Stuff like that. Um, And, you know, all in all, I've done about 200 or so, a little bit more, you know, I was doing, I was doing five and six a day at the beginning. And then I got kind of worn down to doing two and three a day. And, (laughs) and I've just kind of come to the end. Uh, There's a couple more, but not really that much. Uh, And overall 99.9% of the people uh, have been great. Uh, They've, responded super positively to the feedback. And, I, you know, I was very important straight up to say, your mileage may vary. You know, if you disagree with me, that's totally cool. Uh, but about two people were just, you know, raging assholes. So don't be those people is my advice. If someone's trying to help you, especially if someone's trying to be nice about it, don't freak out at them on DMs on Twitter or scream at them on, you know, whatever social media you can find. It's not a good look. And considering the conversation was totally private, and I wasn't like dumping a review on Drive Through RPG about your products, it seems like a little bit of an overreaction. So you two, calm down, you guys. Not not in, <laughs> not you guys, but the, the other guys. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, the old guys. There's always one, but you found two. So well done, you
1: <laughs> get the extra one. In I know. I must have covered a lot of people to get two. <laughs>
2: Did these two guys are they not aware of your Twitter handle? I mean, have they not seen any of your? <laughs> I really, I really you may don't do know. private criticism for RPG designers, but the world is getting it for free, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Well, that's you know that's my great pastime is just you know pointless. It's Generation X, right? You just comment on things, and sure. you know you certainly know you can't fix anything. So you know why not just rail about stuff for a little while and have some fun. But yeah, as far as like creative stuff, like, you know, I want, unlike a lot of creators, there are, I'm not going to name any creators, but a lot of creators are like, oh, geez, the market's getting so full and (laughs) all these people are, and it just drives me fucking nuts. I'm just kind of like, what do you think Mark Reinhagen was saying when you were writing your first book? You know, he was saying the same shit. Everybody's saying it's not true. There's always room. Uh, we want new creative blood. We want new ideas. You know, I remember a time when Wizards of the Coast didn't exist, when White Wolf didn't exist, when it was just TSR and, and White Wolf started to break them out and then Wizards just came along and completely bulldozed everybody from nothing. Mm. Uh, that can happen again. That, and, and trust me when I say Wizards of the Coast sounds grand, but it was Peter in a little house that he had triple mortgaged to print this silly card game that everybody thought was really stupid at the beginning that everybody that's within reach of people right now, that kind of industry changing product it can happen. And I've seen it happen multiple times. So when people are like, ah, new people coming into the hobby and making stuff, get out of my lane. I just, it just drives me nuts. So I was hopeful I could kind of invite people to send me their stuff. Um, And those two people, uh, Baz, uh,
0: <laughs> I don't
1: believe they're familiar with my stuff at all. They just kind of did wow. a drive by, like someone said something. So here, uh, and I, <laughs> okay. you know, they were, I guess they were expecting like a gold star, or, like me to go check mark, good job and have no feedback. But it, you know, it was like, this is kind of a neat idea, but I don't really, it doesn't really follow through in the product. It wasn't even super negative. There are other products that got much more negative feedback and those people were just awesome. They were just kind of like, cool, I'm going to try and break this down and restructure this so it works. And I was like, do what you think is right. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, you know, it's, it's not math. I can't go, well, uh, of course you carry the four here and then it equals hit products. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's kind of, you got to put your soul into it and really care about it. I'm hopeful I help more than I hurt, which is, you know, I guess all I can do. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely well, it's, it's good to see that kind of activity if you know what i mean because
0: quite often people ask for help in in a sort yeah. of roundabout way and there's very little comes back you quite often see advice on you know if it's about writing or drawing whatever
1: it's like oh I'll do more of it
0: so i'm, yeah. that advice. Like, I'm doing that
1: already <laughs> what i want yes. is something yeah. a bit more constructive yeah well one of my favorite bits of advice like i you know i went to a school of visual arts in New York, and everybody who works at School of Visual Arts is like stupidly famous. Like they're like, you know, if you're an artist, like one of my teachers was Will Eisner. This now for those who don't know who Will Eisner is, he invented the comic book, and I, that's not an exaggeration. He was like, "What if we put comic strips together and kind of told one story?" You know, he was that guy. um And these their feedback was always just fun and brutal and and in your face, and it really made me a better artist a better writer a better everything and his best piece of feedback to me was i was so nervous in my portfolio review with him my first portfolio review to show him a piece of sequential art i was like sweating he's this old man he looks like the guy from up basically and 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 he looks at me and he sees i'm like i have no color in my face i'm like shaking basically and he goes you're worrying because you think you're important you're not important. I'm not important. Comics aren't important. Like all this is just something we do for fun and you need to be able to experiment and fail. So just calm down and just I'll tell you what I think you're doing wrong and hopefully you'll get better and maybe you'll do something I don't even understand. And I was like, wow, Will Eisner just kind of blew my mind because I was so obsessed with perfection at that point that I was like, I wouldn't show him anything that I hadn't spent 70 hours drawing. And, you know, from that point on, I was just kind of like, okay, well, let's experiment. Let's try cool stuff. And if you fail enough, you know, failure is your process to creating good stuff for anything, for games, for, so you have to get out there. You have to bring products out. You have to see how people react to them. And then you have to kind of adjust and, and there's this weird misconception that we somehow make products that are just hits out of the gate, uh, you know, every time or something like that. And it's just not the case. We, we make tons of stuff that we think is awesome, and everybody goes yawn and they all move on. And we're like, no, wait, we spent seven years working on that. So that's <laughs> totally normal. That's a normal outcome.
2: Mm. So after seeing 200 of these in a fairly short amount of time, yeah. We, we're starting to give some boilerplate feedback there. What, can you give us some boilerplate feedback? I mean, what, what's the uh, what? What are the common hits and misses that but, people are doing? Uh,
1: the most common hit is you know, and I will say this is presentation. Right. So, so not art per se. Art is expensive, so I understand that. Art Art can be a kind of a line in the sand that some people just can't cross. If this is a hobby, you know, I. I can totally understand. I can't spend $350 to get a, a, a half-page black-and-white piece of art made for me. But having said that, uh, laying out text, chances are if you're making a, a PDF product, you have access to some sort of big text layout technology in Word or whatever else. So learning the basics, looking at a book and mimicking, you know, here's the header, here's header two, here's the body text, here's a quote. And then coming up with a clear kind of visual language there, not just here's a wall of text with a, a tiny little title that's not in caps, that is not bigger. So it literally looked like a manifesto from the Unabomber was kind of the common, you know. So so that, that was my biggest, you know, boilerplate feedback was kind of like, just look at the books you like and try to kind of, you don't have to mimic them, but Follow their design examples. There's a reason they have the title text in a different color or, you know, much bigger or, you know, all caps. Uh, and it's for readability and it makes the book flow better. Um, so that was kind of the bog standard. Almost, you know, most of the hits were like that. There was a magazine that was ridiculously well laid out mm. that I will not mention by name where I was like, Wow. Uh, I got nothing here, let me read some of the articles. And that was awesome, that was really great to see. Someone really cared enough about the design language to really almost create something new that I hadn't seen before, which was awesome. And, you know, whenever you see something like that and you think, God, I had absolutely nothing to do with this and there's nothing I can really do to help this guy except to say, holy hell, this is really good that's a really good feeling for me too, which is, you know, even though I had nothing to do with it, it's really nice to see someone out there just kicking butt um, who hasn't done anything, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with that. And, you know, it's fun to see this stuff. I like most of the stuff. Uh, there was a, a wild West scenario for like dd five, which I never would have put together. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is like a neat, like, I could run this in one night, and it'd be fun. It's just Goofy and, and you know, Six Shooters and, you know, Demon Ore and all this kind of Wild West stuff. I, you know, so I've I gained stuff I'm going to play out of it. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah, this is just a big big. way of getting a lot of free
1: scenarios. Actually. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> I've, I've had some attempted hard sells, though. I've had people show up and go, you want to review it? Pay the money. Really? <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> God, I don't think I'm gonna do that. Sorry. <laughs> you, want, you, know? you want they
0: want me to pay you to review it? <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Uh yeah. amazing. They never responded after I was like, I don't
0: think I'm gonna do that. So when you were on the creative process to use a grand term, I guess, is it like you and Shane kind of bounce stuff back off each other? Is that the kind of,
1: for, of for Delta for Delta Green, Delta Green's really unusual. Delta Green is like uh I don't want this to sound too grand. It's like being in the Beatles. It's like you, you know <laughs> yeah, doesn't sound grand at all. I don't know what you're talking. You about. know, you know the other guy kind of has his shit covered, and you're worried. You're more worried about being impressive as fuck on your end. <laughs> you're less worried about what John's doing over there. You know, like so Shane. When Shane creates something, I'm ninety-nine point nine percent sure it's gonna hit all the Delta Green bells and whistles. It's just gonna work. And and at the core, you know Shane Scotts, uh, Ken Heights, and most recently Caleb Stokes. Uh, just they just get it. They just kind of it just works. When I read their stuff, my feedback consists of: Would it be, would it be creepier if if this happened a little earlier or a little later, or if maybe you combine the two things you created into this thing here? It's much less like I disagree with this idea. I you know and in fact in Delta Green. I can't recall the last time we had a conversation like that. So generally what we do is one of us will hammer on a manuscript and then hand it off. So most recently for me, it was Impossible Landscapes, which was kind of like handing off you know, a 14th century Spanish fort on top of someone's house. I literally just went <laughs> and it just blew Shane up for like months where he had to crawl through every page and kind of. Because, I, you know, I don't know what you guys know about the book, if you've read the book or seen it, um, but it, yeah, it's a horrible spider's web of nightmare interrelationships between thousands of elements, which all means something. And I was like, here, Shane, check, make sure everything lines up. I'll, I'll be over here. And uh, poor Shane. Uh, he did a great job. Shane, likewise, is working on uh, Deep State right now. And when he's kind of done with that draft, he'll hand it off to me and I'll, I will crawl through it. Uh, Caleb Stokes, uh, the author of God's Teeth, which is our next campaign, which is just, and I hope you take this for what it's worth. Uh, I, this is Dennis Detler, the, the, the the guy who writes the scenarios that kill, you know, the guy running the scenario is probably going to die. Everybody's going to die. <laughs> Caleb Stokes' campaign is the darkest thing I've ever read by wow. far in Delta Green. It just makes everything look like, let's retreat two impossible landscapes where we could be happy. And, and you know, it's, <laughs> Crazy it's that, that, that yeah. is that is the deepest praise I can give a Delta Green product yeah. is to go, wow, that's pretty fucked up right there. So I'm working on that. So yeah, Caleb handed that in. This is a great example of kind of the collaboration. He, he handed it a near complete uh, manuscript and just said, you know, go ahead and edit it. I did a full editing pass where I kind of, mostly with Caleb, it was just kind of stripping out little bits and consolidating them and moving them around the the document, that's it. There there was no real editorial high level changes and then it'll go to Shane and then it'll go to our copy editor and there'll be slight rewrites, but it's mostly like, can you change this paragraph to have more information on X? Much less like, don't do that, which is really nice. Delta Green kind of has its own flavor. But it's very definitely a toy that's played with by, you know, a half dozen individuals and we greedily keep it from others because (laughs) they almost always come in and do really crazy shit off the bat. Like what if mankind could control the great old ones is like the favorite. That's like the first thing everybody does when they, and we just go, Oh, sweet Jesus. Uh, And just kind (laughs) of walk away, you know, (laughs) because I mean, it's like, Oh, what if this whole scenario was about the choice of guns and we're just kind of like we're good thanks. Yeah, yeah. we got everybody we need uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very carefully put together property and we know it's only as good as our last release so every release we're trying to make it better and better and better
2: and is Impossible Landscapes the first Delta Green campaign?
1: Yes yes
2: well, so it is that took a while and now you've got you've mentioned three since then i think so oh we, all we've coming got together
1: <laughs> yeah we've got uh impossible landscapes will be out uh, i will get my first copy of it uh the first week in may and it'll be out uh, the first week of june uh in book form it's out yeah. in pdf right now on drive-thru rpg and it's been doing really well but god's teeth uh i'm in the middle of painting god's teeth now so this is this is the unfortunate reality of being dennis <laughs> is that i'll edit it and then then I have to, it's like, it's like you write a book, you read a book, and then you have to eat the book page by page. That's kind of what the painting part feels like. It's like, oh, uh, okay. So I'm, I think I'm four or five paintings in and I have to do something like 50. So I'm on that. So that won't be, God's Teeth probably won't be until uh, fall, probably closer to Christmas when we get the book back, but PDF in fall. We'll have the raw text, kind of edited text PDF ready to go in a month or so so everybody in the kickstarter will get that um and it's it's awesome i just love that campaign uh but yeah we're, we're very focused on kind of getting out a few really strong campaigns impossible landscapes was my attempt uh at creating kind of a the big campaign for delta green god's teeth is much more focused and and about a great old one in kind of a classical sense impossible Landscapes. I don't want to give any spoilers. Uh, Can you beat me out or something? Um, sure. Give him a cut.
0: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. If you don't want to know about the mechanics behind Impossible Landscapes, then I suggest you skip forward a minute and a half, maybe two minutes for safety, and we shall resume the podcast there. However, if you don't mind your sanity being blown, Please continue, dear listeners. So
1: the the entire idea, like, and you're encouraged to do this, is that the entire world is an illusion. Like, everything you've done, all of Delta Green, the Great Old Ones, Infinite Horror, Cosmic Horror, the only thing that's real is the play, The King in Yellow, which is going on somewhere all the time, and we're all just extras stumbling across this cosmic stage so at the end of the scenario you find out you find things like the things i did for my players are you know they get to carcosa and they find entire rooms filled with props which are actually the furniture from their apartments and you know this oh my god like that that was from a victim of the art when we hunted the biaki like that's that chair was that kid's chair and everything's a set everything is fake and i've run it eight times maybe nine times now and it's always different but the ending the room there's a room called the prop room that they almost all got to which is literally every prop in the game being mass produced again and again so you know the unique ticket with the blood streaks on it there's two dozen of them on the table and you know little paint brushes and like someone's actually making these things and then kind of putting them in the world uh, and every time the players were just like, okay, that's it. Um, I got to step away from the table for a little bit after spending weeks and weeks playing this game. They're just like, this is just wrong. This feels bad. I'm leaving. So it was pretty funny. Do you think, I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but do you, do you think there's a
0: chance that some of the Delta Green campaigns will become iconic in the way that perhaps Horror on the Ocean Express or a Masculine Arts do or something like that? Was it just a different kind of.
1: I don't, you know, I don't really know. I, I, you know, my goal. I, I was, you know, I was a good buddy with Larry, who wrote Masks uh, and and many other amazing uh, games for Chaosium. Um, and that, yeah, I, I love Masks of the Temp. I just unreservedly adore that campaign. It is my favorite. It is my. It is just so cool. Um, and I've run that. 12 or 15 times i forget um and i've been in it three times at least with john Tynes as the keeper and um i I definitely wrote impossible landscapes to try and do larry proud i mean larry died not too long ago was a really great guy uh you know worked on shira and you know that's that's a sand loss right there when you realize the guy who wrote shira wrote masks of neural (laughs) thotep you're like wait what (laughs) <laughs> um, it's just a really cool dude. So yeah, I definitely tried to write Impossible Landscapes to be as all-encompassing and creepy in a different way than Masks. Masks is about, you know, the classic Lovecraftian cosmic horror. This is about surreal horror. This is, you know, the horror of Jacob's Ladder, or The Shining, or it's like that. Uh, and I really want to make a grand book of that. So I don't know if it'll work. So far, the reviews have been quite good. I can't wait till the book comes out and then we'll see. But I hope so. And God's teeth. I believe in that way more than my book, just because it's, you know, it's not my baby and I can see how evil it truly is. I'm sure I'm blind to a lot of the goodness and impossible landscapes in it. Uh, Just because it's mine. It's difficult for me to see. But Caleb's stuff is just bright as day. Awesome. So. Cool. How how do you think that um, Delta Green's
0: doing? It's uh, from my perception, it seems to be bigger now than it was in the nineties. When it was was big at the time, Uh, it just seems. It's it's
1: infinitely bigger than the nineties. It's it's. I mean, the sales are great. I mean, so step one in the nineties, we never sold anything. We 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 would make these grand books that would win all these awards, and we'd end up going bankrupt on, you know. Distributors stealing our books. And like Delta Green Countdown was an unmitigated financial disaster for Pagan Publishing. And it's considered like, you know, oh, it's the number two RPG supplement of all time. Well, that's neat. Where's my freaking money? <laughs> um, you know, like I literally didn't eat for two weeks because we had no money. So by that comparison, this is a full time job for me and Shane, and uh, it pays well. Um, so it's night and day compared to the nineties. The nineties was literally starving, you know, no money, no time, no car, no anything, uh, and barely getting this work together. And now it's 24 seven Delta green and I couldn't be happier. It's awesome. It's, oh, I gotta go pink goat's eyes again. That's a <laughs> shame. What a terrible day, you know? <laughs> so what else are you working on then besides Delta green? You must have other projects. High level, and this is pretty quiet, uh, a bunch of TV guys who produce a really awesome show on Netflix approached me about uh, my RPG godlike um, Mm -hmm. several months ago. Uh, And if I said the name of the TV show, you would go, oh my God, but I can't say that. Uh, And they've been working on a pitch uh, for an adult animated cartoon for Netflix. And we teamed with a a group of people on Facebook Deeply familiar with. I went to college with the guy who owns the company, uh, a guy named Chris Pernoski. uh The company is called Titmouse. Uh, they're like the number one North American animation studio. They do movies and they have an exclusive deal with Netflix. And uh Godlike, for those who don't know, is kind of saving Private Ryan meets X-Men set in World War II, where um mutants, it's not it's not about mutants, it's about people who can literally bend. Reality to their will by out believing it, Um, so they can literally do anything, and they can cancel each other out, and they can see each other like gunslingers. They just know that's a talent, and uh, it's a very dark violence. You know, you can lift a tank, but you can still get shot in the face by a bar kind of game. We were just joking about the world's strongest man can lift uh, eighty or hundred tons, and he's ninety eight pounds soaking wet, uh, and he hits one person in anger once. And when he does, the man literally detonates like a bomb, uh, covering everybody in viscera and blood for, you know, 25 yards. And he never does it again. He he literally hauls off to punch one person and he's just like, nope, done. So it's a very down to earth examination of what superhumans would actually do in the world. Uh, And the answer is not a lot of good, uh, quite quite a lot of strange and they certainly, you know, the way they were built would not change the war significantly. They kill each other mostly uh, and, and very violently. So they're working on that. They're doing a lot of concept art and, and you know, production still pre, you know, fake production stills and write-ups. And uh, this is my favorite part. I wrote the book in 2001. So what is that, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. So they go, what about X? And I go, I don't remember X and, and they and they say, Well, it's this guy. And I say, Oh, that sounds great. And they say, No, 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 no. What what, what you should we that. do with this guy? And I'm like, I don't remember. Let me look at it and I'll get back to you. And, and you know, so my favorite part is like talking to incredibly talented people and having no decision-making capability at all. It's just great. It's it's kind of like they're like should we do x with y i'm like whatever you think is going to make this thing fly you do and i trust you cuz you make an awesome show and and they're like wow we've never worked with a creator as friendly as you and i'm like dude this isn't friendliness this is just sheer exhaustion of not recalling at all what i wrote in that book 20 years ago I someone so, else I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's awesome it's so exciting but yeah they're working on that i do a lot of magic the gathering i, I people may not know i worked on magic the gathering many years ago so i do a lot of uh, artist print cards and paints uh, uh on the back of artist print cards i'm doing six of those right now um here hang on oh This will be awesome for our uh, podcast listeners but we can see they, so this is what the card looks like can you see that oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i remember that one yeah, yeah. and then this is what wow. the painting looks like so. so so here's the goblin rock sled which is Richard Garfield's favorite card. Is it? Yeah. then nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, I do a lot of these, and they're great fun. I just love, you know, um, skirting around with paint and kind of going, and I do a lot of um, – uh, I've become somewhat uh, cornered into doing movie – I do movie paintings. So I do these huge oil canvases of Mad Max Fury Road or – aliens or and people pay me to do that which seems really stupid because it's just such a great joy to do it anyway um <laughs> makes a change but, from ties, anyway <laughs> i'm not gonna complain yeah it's it's great fun they're like they call me up i'm like can you paint the Creedy from the thing drinking scotch and i'm like i probably already did that let me look <laughs> around yeah. <laughs> yeah. somewhere around here
2: so when you go back to like a magic card, does that fire mm-hmm. neurons in your head that you don't get for 20 year old godlike characters, but when it's yeah. art, does it, do you think, I remember that stroke. I remember that color choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, the magic cards are really hard to forget because it was a really formative time. Like we, I, I don't know how much you guys know about wizards in the background there, but basically we were in Columbia, uh, John Tynes and I and the rest of Pagan Publishing were in Columbia, Missouri, which is this tiny, tiny little town. Uh, and I was living off New York wages for illustration there. So I was living like a king. It was just grand. It was like, we're renting a giant house. And you know, I used to live in, on a on a bunk in someone's living room for $1,000 a month in New York. And in Colombia, it's like, I will take this palatial, you know, middle <laughs> century rambler house for $350 a month. Thank you very much. So I was living there with John and I did a bunch of kind of test art for magic for a guy named Jesper Mirfors, who also did art for us for mm. Delta Green and other books. And he was the art director of Wizards. And they were just people in a basement at the time uh, Lisa Stevens, Peter Atkinson, Richard. And uh, we went to Texas to Origins, the, the Origins show, and we hung out with our buddies from Wizards of the Coast. And literally, the first game of magic with real cards was played with us we sat at the table outside the the hall before they sold out and uh, we played with the first kind of open decks with John Tynes and Peter Atkinson playing each other and uh, it was a terrible game it sucked (laughs) ass it took forever the sorting was all wrong so all the card rarities were all wrong so it took like nine years to get anything into play and we were me and Lisa were just like yeah, we've made a terrible mistake working on this thing. This is just terrible. Uh, but of course, uh, then, then they went to the show and they sold out, you know, I forget forget the story. It's like a million a million dollars print run in three and a half hours or something. Uh, and by the end of the show, people were having fistfights over the old anti-rules, which was uh, the game used to yeah, be- you gave you up a card, didn't you? Yeah. You gave up a card and people were literally beating each other. And I was like, Shows what I know. I thought this was dumb as shit about <laughs> 12 hours ago. And now I think it's genius. But uh, after that show, uh, Peter and Jesper said, friends of wizards, anybody who's done anything for us, come out to Seattle. You got a job. So we flew out, rented a house. Uh, I crashed in this house before John got there and the rest of the pagans. And that's where I painted the, the dark cards. They were all due in a week. And I literally had no furniture, sitting on the floor in a sleeping bag with gouache, painting these cards in the dark with no light, like the electricity's oh, not even on. Thematic, uh, of dogs, yeah. So, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, so I have a very vivid memory and, and magic became this. It's really weird. I've described it to people, it's like um, if you had a song in high school that only you and your friends knew and you flew to Tel Aviv, Israel, and got off the plane and everybody there singing the song that's what magic feels like to me. It's like this little thing that me and my friends kind of fooled around with and did, but it saved my ass so many times global. Like uh, I told the story before, but I, I landed in Tokyo once and they lost everything. They lost my backpack. They lost my suitcases. I had a passport and like 40 bucks. And I went to a magic shop and I said, Oh, Hey, you know, I'm Dennis Dettler. I painted that card right there. And he was like, crater lycanthrope. Like he knew he knew exactly, and, and this guy just descended on me and like took care of me for days. Like, stay here, and here's your food, and sign some cards for me. I was like, sure, you know, anything you need. And it's just like this magic pass. If you're, if you worked on any of the early sets, you go to Italy, everybody, you know, they have the big magic show there. It's bizarre. Um, but it feels very private and small to me, but I know it's not. Hmm. Um, so it's a really weird feeling it, it feels very surreal whenever it's like oh yeah that's the thing that made 65 million dollars in the last three months you're like what the stupid cards sorry richard yeah, yeah. Well, the, to be fair we i think it was Gen
0: con uk at loughborough and they were handing out other alphas or beta decks i can't remember what it was yeah everyone just throwing them in the bin they were like the, you know the flyers yeah. you get bags, and stuff we're like i oh, don't, don't play stupid
1: because yeah. i have to play real games You know, yeah Totally. Well, I have a, uh, I, I have two sealed alphas, like the, the big store decks, and one of them signed by everybody. So I'm just saving that for kids. Got to go to college, you know. We'll figure something <laughs> out. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's very surreal to think about that stuff. But yeah, no, it, it definitely provokes different thoughts in my brain, um, and it helps me kind of get around creative issues while working on other stuff sometimes.
2: Yeah so you go to the paints when the when the words are drying up and go to the words when the paints are drying up.
1: Yep yeah, that's precisely it yeah. and and yeah. I you know I try not to uh I think the big downfall there I, I know other people do that but the big downfall is oh I have this idea for another thing. Right. That's and I, that took me 15 years to kill that habit where I was like but what about the time traveling elf idea you know in a right right 2000 words on that and it'll just sit on my hard drive for 10 years and i'll have 15 projects going at once so i try and keep it two or three writing projects two or three art projects and if i'm going to pick up a new thing i'm going to kill an old thing and that's kind of my high level rule and that way i don't get caught in the but now i have 60 projects going at once which is how i was 15 years ago um well, which is why I was so unproductive compared to now.
2: <laughs> and then you ask people on Twitter to send you their unpublished RPGs.
1: <laughs> well, I had some, I had some downtime. I, you know, honestly, honestly, that was, um, I was trying to flush my brain out. You know, from Impossible Landscapes was such a, I, I don't know how to properly portray how complicated a product that was, but it, it, it every day after work, it felt like someone had beaten me you know, repeatedly about the head where I was just kind of like, someone would say something and then my head is buzzing. It's literally like, and I'm like, wait, what did you say something to me? Uh, and that that went on for months. So after it felt like if you showed me what you're working on, then I can kind of decompress a little bit. Uh, so it felt, it felt good for me. It was a good deal all around. I think like I didn't, it, it helped me kind of mellow out after impossible landscapes where I was every day, I was like, what's wrong? Is the layout on 428 working? Jesus, what's happening? And now so, flashbacks on it. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was this is the it is the single most complicated layout design art writing product we've ever done by far. It makes countdown look really simple and happy and yeah. You know, so so one of the things I thought about it was just reading the first few pages
0: is as a GM, you kind of have to think like how am I going to deliver this? to players was that, yes, was, that was, was that a consideration for you or do you just think yeah
1: yeah that was that was the core consideration was how the, the high level answer to that is this is a kit to scare the pants off your players this is this is like a you know you've, you've bought a, a a bunch of cinder blocks a bunch of concretes and a, you know some rugs and going to build an extra room but it could be any number of things and i really wanted to build a surreal horror kind of showcase that you can kind of place anywhere and kind of make anything happen uh with a with a skeleton through it that you can kind of follow the core conceit of surreal horror is it has to be able to move it has to be able to jump it has to be able to kind of just you open the door and it's not at all what you expected there is there So it can't be linear, it can't be prescribed, it can't be, and that's a tough one. That's like those two together because games are linear. That's kind of how these games come out. So the answer is to, oh, the answer I arrived at, I won't say it's the answer, is to, you know, divide up the chunks, uh, make them universally slottable. You know, you can just as easily take any of those encounters from the night floors and drop them anywhere. And it tells tells a little story, deepens the mystery, and it opens up other threads. And uh, the entire goal, don't listen if you're going to play this, the entire goal was to have...
0: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. If you don't want to know about the mechanics behind Impossible Landscapes, then I suggest you skip forward a minute and a half, maybe two minutes for safety and we shall resume the podcast there. However, if you don't mind your sanity being blown, please continue, dear listeners.
1: The entire goal was to have a, a skein of encounters that all point back to the play uh, at the centre of everything, and that's all it does. It's, it's just this giant web that just kind of goes, oh, by the way, it all is about this, and you're going to end up there And if you don't, you're already dead. Have fun. Um, You know, uh, I've run it eight eight times, maybe like almost nine times. We're not done with the night. That's the only reason I say that. And every time it's been different, but every time (laughs) it's led to very unique role playing, which has been awesome. You know, we had a guy, uh, one of the agents, uh, fuck off to Saskatoon and rent a cabin and just go, I'm done. No King Yellow for me. Thank you very much. And, you know, shoot at people who appeared on his land and all this other kind of stuff. And I just slowly made his life a living hell in the cabin with the king until he was like, I need people. That's what I need. I need to be near people all the time. And it was just great fun to, to kind of do that in a almost a Bond scene where it's like, uh, you've thrown all the mirrors outside the cabin now because they're not safe. And you can't go in the bathroom at night uh you're pretty sure the light's talking to you with the clicks but you're not counting those anymore uh and the guy was just kind of like this is not funny i don't want to do this anymore it's like well your team's waiting for you they need your help and he was like okay okay so it's really it was fun um but i love i love coming up with like as a handler it's your job to kind of fill in the gaps I love coming up with those set pieces that really will cripple a player and really make a player go, you know what? I didn't like that at all in a lot of different ways. You want to creep them out. So, so I love coming up with those and and just kind of giving you a a toolkit, you know? Hmm.
0: I think that's quite important just for like generally scenario writing, he's having things to do, but both as the the keeper or GM and as the players as well, you know, you want, You don't just want a story to read because there's these things called novels and you can just read Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And none of this stuff survives first contact with the players anyway, ever. Mm. Like, I I can't tell you how many operations or or scenarios or whatever that have literally been completely unraveled in 15 seconds. Like, oh, oh yeah, we're going to reverse the phone call charges and see who called and then we're tracking him. And it's like, oh, yeah, whoops. (laughs) <laughs> uh you know so so there's never there's never a you know for sure you have them locked in you got them you know where they're gonna go players always do some crazy shit and you're just kind of have to go along with it and it, most more often than not it just leads to amazingly funny awesome outcomes scott clancy blew himself up i think that did you know that one in the have you guys talked to scott ever No, yeah. Uh, uh, So Scott's one of the co authors of Green. And uh, oh, no, it wasn't him. It was his partner. They were trying to kill Amigo, like a guy who had been resurrected by the Amigos living in the woods, who's immortal and doesn't have to eat anymore. Like every time he tries to commit suicide, his body fixes that. So he hung himself, he doesn't have to breathe. You know, he poisoned himself. His body can process anything now. He just wants to die. He just wants the Migo to come back and kind of put him out of his misery. He's tried to light himself on fire, thrown himself off cliffs and he's made himself into an indestructible kind of bone monster that just can't be killed. So the agents were like, okay, I'm going to make a a laptop that, that has that iTunes visualizer on it and I'm going to put C4 in it and put a proximity alarm. And it's just going to blow up when he gets it. And we're just going to blow him to bits. And then, in the bits and uh, I forget the guy rolled like a zero zero or something putting this together and blew himself up and suddenly the entire Delta Green mission becomes get rid of the, the bomb disposal guy's body <laughs> and and that was just a horrible you know, six hours with them just put it in their lake, it doesn't sink oh my god, what do we do read a book, stab the chest until the air cavity is emptied, lose six sand just doing that but and, and then people start calling looking for this guy and they're like oh my god they're starting to crawfish on each other the agents they're like i'm gonna tell him he was with the other fbi agent oh you fucker why would you do that you know so that was great but i love those little <laughs> when the mission becomes oh my god look at this mess we need to clean this up it's so much fun yeah i think
0: a couple of my favorite uh, scenarios that i've i've done it Start with you get the call from another group because, when yeah. you, you always get the burner phone number with like if you you're desperate ring this. Right. That's, that's always like a great intro as you get a call from the other team going, oh gosh, what like, going wrong? You need to get in now, help <laughs> <It's>, us. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I think for Delta Green, I don't know how you feel about this, but for those sort of games, I prefer to play that getting into something i know a lot of the scenarios are, are, are set more like you have the briefing you have to travel there you go right. port security you do, like there's all this other stuff so i'd much rather be you're in it up to your you know up to your neck at least if not above it now and then we, right. just, we go done from that point i think that's more you mean
1: it kind of kind of in media res stuff yeah no I, I understand i understand that that feeling most of the scenarios you could easily just grab the the first high octane section and just go, okay, well, this is what Stuff you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, no, I can understand why that would be interesting. I just, I, I can't help it. I love handing out rope. I just, <laughs> you know, what, what kind of gun do you want to bring? How are you going to get it there? Okay. Here's the rope. Keep, keep running with that. Put that around your neck. Keep going. Okay. You know, and uh, what, my favorite all time favorite was one of the guys Literally the agent says, Oh, I respond to my wife on Facebook saying I love you, honey, blah, 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 blah. And then lies to go to some location. And I had his Facebook ping his location. I, like it it literally just reports his location to his wife. Sharing and she's furious. So there's a half dozen, you know, he's literally hunting, howling horrors from beyond in a mine somewhere. And when he comes out, there's like two dozen voicemails, and his wife is screaming at him on the internet. And he ends up getting divorced. She thinks he's cheating on him. And he's like, I couldn't tell her the truth, you know? And it's just like, dude, you totally handed me that rope. That was, don't use fucking Facebook when you're in Delta Green. Just leave your phone at home, dude. You know? So, yeah. Poor guy.
2: <laughs> people have been saying that um, back in the 90s, you didn't have to worry about cell phones in yes. Call of Cthulhu Adventures. And it yes. turns out they're a great plot device after all.
1: They're amazing. I always hear this like, oh, they ruined Cosmic Car. And I'm like, I have no idea what game you're playing because I just <laughs> have great fun. Like, it's like if you could transmit radiation over the telephone and kill people, that's basically what a smartphone is in Delta Green. It's like, look at this video of this horrible thing eating somebody. And you know that's real. Sand loss. Like everybody else goes, Oh wow, that's really impressive CG. Mm -hmm. And Delta Green, like we even wrote it into Delta Green, where there's an entire team at the program. All they do is upload slightly modified CG videos over real videos, next to real videos, going, Oh, check out more work by this guy here. Like that's a comment in the the actual footage of a a gore or something like that. And it points to a cheap CG version of it. And it's like, nobody's going to believe that's real. Like nobody believes half the stuff that's on there is real anyway. There's a wonderful, uh, there's a guy named the faking hoaxer. I don't know if you've seen his stuff on YouTube. It's like, here, here's the, the remnants of the crashed air force one spread out across the Texas field. And it looks totally real, like 100% believable um if you put cnn at the bottom you'd be like oh well air Force one crashed i hope biden's okay like um uh but yeah you know they they don't ruin anything you just gotta you gotta think how can i screw my players with this that's the key yeah for yeah. Cos- for cosmic Horror yeah i did see a there was
0: a disappointing stream i saw part of i think Shea might have even been in the game but it's kind of like they'd land at an airport uh, and one of the players was like oh can i buy a burner phone and the gym mm-hmm. was kind of like, I'll oh, make a look roll to see if the shop's open. And I'm like, really? Like, like a, bur- a burner phone? Like, really? There's two exciting ways of this scenario going to go based on whether you can buy a phone or not in a major American city in an airport. I just don't understand. what. The- but that, that's, that's crazy. Uh, different people focus on different details. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's kind of not the core of the Delta Green experience. Like the way I would pitch Delta Green is, it, it, you know, it's the, the classic Lovecraftian At the Mountains of Madness. You know, it, they're literally flying in triplanes with radar and all. You know, they, they're they stacked to the gills with high tech. It doesn't yeah. do them one iota of good. Like, it just makes things infinitely worse. That's, it's like, we can now understand why they're cutting us to pieces and dissecting our dogs and they're going to kill us all. Yay! Uh, okay. Um, and cell phones are exactly the same thing it's okay. there's no no difference so i encourage you to kill players with cell phones do it you'll <laughs> like it it's fun maybe kill the characters first but
0: I don't <laughs> know. no the players kill the players <laughs> we do not endorse this message <laughs> so, to go back to one of the games that you mentioned Then we were um talking about godlike briefly which is one of bazanai's favorite games yeah um, oh, cool. From from back in there we ran it at, at to mention janecon again. Uh that's when oh, Peter great. Peter Edgerton had taken it over again. And unfortunately the ticketing messed up, so we're supposed to run one game every day. And instead they sold like 18 tickets for the same day for each of us. So like we turned oh, up to the Jesus. table and there's like literally two platoons of people going, like <laughs> can we play again? I was like, um I guess we're playing one o'clock wake up and a lot of you're gonna die <laughs> yeah. really quickly. You know?
1: Yeah, we're gonna play it's D-Day. Guess what? <laughs> You we needed more D tens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs>
2: a lot more uh, yeah. D tens on that day. Yeah, initiative yeah, roles are fun. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, I love, I love Godlike. I, you know, I had a really good time working on that and the background and just the ideas. It was just great fun for me. Do you think there's any chance of? Because um, i have noticed quite a few games. There seems to be a resurgence
0: or a reissue. So I mean, whether or not your, your TV project goes anywhere, do you think? Yeah,
1: that, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly. If the, TV, if the TV project goes 100%, you will see a, a new edition of Godlike. And um, I've actually written, the, the TV project is almost more based on a book I've written called There Were Giants in Those Days, which is a very strange little book. Uh, you remember those time-life World War II books that yeah. you know took up shelves everywhere? It's written like that. Uh, so it, it's kind of like remember when that man could fly in 1936 we know that's boring but let's move on to the interesting stuff like the fillet pocket and you know uh so it's written as if talents are just an everyday thing in in the 70s and the 80s it's boring we you know it's like we're examining superhumans in combat in almost a clinical sense so it's written as a history book uh in there and they quite like that uh it's got a very kind of Uh, the bleak character's guy named Stephen Whalen who works in New York times. And all he does is go fly place to place and write articles on talents as they kind of emerge during the war. So that's kind of the background of what they're working with. Uh, That'll come out. If, if the TV goes uh, we'll do another Kickstarter and do a whole new edition. And I have a great artist. I don't want to do the art. Uh, I have an amazing artist uh, who is obsessive about details like guns and tanks and who would do all the art, but you know, if this TV deal goes, then a lot of stuff's going to come out. <laughs> I'll, have, just <laughs> gonna have, have to. I'll just have it. I'll have a lot more time and a lot more kind of money to, to hire the people I would love to work on this stuff with to kind of make things possible. Right now, you know, we're doing well, but it's always constrictive to how many people you can actually hire to kind of work on these things. So right sure. now it's, it's basically me and Shane, Caleb Stokes in kind of a auxiliary slot doing our, our web and our... Uh, Twitch channel and that kind of stuff. Uh, We'd love to hire more. You know, it's all about being realistic about how you spend your money to keep the lights on and also to produce enough and also to keep going. The the, the most common mistake I see is Kickstarter. We made $300,000. We hired 73 people, a monkey and my cousin to make the book. And we're out of money in 15 months. What happened? Like, you know, and it's just like, dude, you just got to, keep the teams really small um, every person is a cost and it just grinds really quickly it, it can you can run out of any amount of money in in an amazingly short time if you're not careful
2: ArcDream Dream kind of does the industry differently do you think yes i mean yes. It, it seems that way from a consumer's point of view and a fan's point of view but you know but you are you're literally sort of living the things you say about how yes. to <laughs> to make friends and influence people in the RPG industry, you know, how to get stuff out there properly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a couple high-level rules that we have that, that you know, have been enunciated to the, to the public. So they there will, there will come as a shock to you guys, I, I don't think. But um, the highest level rule at Arc Dream is if it's not done, it's not done, and we're not releasing it. I don't care when we said it was going to be. You all know these dates are... are Highly questionable. They uh, they have always been that way. Uh, it doesn't mean we're not going to produce it, and it doesn't mean we're not going to outproduce what we promised. Like Impossible Landscapes was like a hundred and twenty eight page book in projection. I think it's three it hundred. 300- stretch goal. was it a stretch goal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was like a hundred and twenty eight page color book. We pitched. It's three hundred and sixty eight. It's bigger than the Keeper's Guide, like the Handler's Guide, um, and you know, we're not charging anybody any more money for that. Like whatever you paid for that in the Kickstarter, you just get the book. And we're always going to do that. If that's the right thing for the product, we're going to make it happen no matter how much it hurts us or because that's the right thing for the book. And we only have our current shot. If we drop the ball on any of these things, it's going to damage us in a way that that is not really easily recoverable. So we have to be very careful. Um, and a lot of companies just won't do that. They just, they'll just go, well, this is coming out in October. Uh, okay. Well compress everything to make it to October and the product suffers for it. And it just, isn't that great. Um, and, you know, we could have released any of these books months and months and months ago by just kind of going chop off the end, sew it up, put it and and it just wouldn't, I would, I would have died of, embarrassment honestly if i had done that um so high level we we me and shane live by that credo but secondarily another another piece of really bad advice i hear all the time is get hired by a big company to make your rpg dreams come true that's just terrible advice there's like 50 seats in the entire freaking rpg industry for people with a salary and healthcare. it's not a lot of people like you go to with people imagine D is like And then there are rows and rows of people at computers, just working on this stuff. It's just not like that. You're better off in this industry. You can do more, you can make more by making your own stuff, by creating your own work. The difference from 30 years ago of making a book is it's infinitely easier to make a book today than it ever was 30 years ago. Making Delta Green Countdown was a nightmare beyond all conception. Because you have to photograph every page, you have to do the layout, design, print it out, literally snap photos, get plates, and send it off to... Today, it's like, I have a PDF, I send it to drive Thru RPG. I have a hardcover in four days. Uh, that's crazy. So, like, embrace that, own your own ideas, because you never know where it's going to go. Uh, and if, if some big company ends up owning your concept, you're going to get diddly and squat out of it at the end of the day, you're going to get a t-shirt saying, I worked on X when X was your baby. This is an industry where a side little tiny little project can come out of nowhere and change the entire industry. Still that industry. So be that guy, be that person, go out and make your own stuff and, and care about it and really bleed into it. and People will notice. Um, it's not about advertising or money or who you know, or Uh, a cadre of people controlling the releases these things don't exist so when i hear people talking like that i just i have to laugh it's ridiculous because literally uh, tomorrow i could release a game about like you know sonic cats with like vacuum cleaner heads and have it in the top 50 at least at release you know it won't stay there because it's going to suck but you know there's literally no controls over any of this. It's just kind of like, I'm going to make a Kickstarter about, you know, interactive socks. You could totally do that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just, it it kills me that I hear people saying and repeating this kind of fiction that there's some kind of secretive cabal or, Mm -hmm. you know, this, these taste builders who make or break things. It just doesn't happen. It's, It's not real. If that was true, you know, people look at us and they're like, you're an industry leader. I'm like, it's me and another guy in a basement. Like, we're, we're not an industry leader. But, you know, if it was all based on money or influencer, we certainly would not be in award ceremonies or, uh, you know, have top selling books on Amazon or top reviewing books on RPG Now, or RPG Geek, just because there are huge companies that actually have real money uh, above us, you know, Free League, uh, Chaosium, uh, Wizards, they would all just kind of muscle us little guys out completely if that were the case. And the truth is there are a lot of little guys who butt things up, who get in there and, you know, win game of the year. Wizards is like, geez, how did that happen? I was just going to say, but
0: even when you mentioning the big guys they're like Free League and Chaosium, yeah. it's like there's still – like you can count on one hand the number of people that are full time employees in those companies. Um, totally, and they yeah. were, you know, basically have resurged in the last. Well, resurged in the form of calcium, but grown from pre league from five years ago. What were there? They were pretty much the same as you and Shane. where a couple of guys that's,
1: in a shed. That's that's totally it. You know, and and you know we're very much of the mind like uh, our uh, Delta Green Arc Dream has grown since the Kickstarter into uh, you know a, a viable ongoing concern in a way that has never been in the past. To Baz's point, the standard RPG model would be, okay, let's hire, let's spread out to another three guys to see so we can get those books out faster. I come from video games. So I I thoroughly know that the more people you add, the slower things go. It it is the exact opposite of the common conception. It, It literally, it's like throwing bodies under a tank. Eventually the tank is going to slow down from just the amount of goo (laughs) <laughs> that comes up from those bodies. Everybody needs to know what they're doing. Everybody needs to know day to day, kind of who's working on what. It just becomes a mess. So, with me and Shane, it's literally like, you got that? Yeah. Okay. I got this. And we'll get to the other stuff once we're done with these things. And hiring those extra people is just a thing you have to retract when things kind of take a downswing. By staying at this size, if things take a downswing, we're still fine for many, many moons. After a point that would have killed that expanded company for no discernible benefit. If I felt we could get all of our books out in a year at high quality by hiring three more people, I would certainly consider it, but I know that's a fiction just based on kind of production history of on complicated shit that I've worked on the past. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's a good point, Bez. And who wants to have that conversation where you've got to lay someone off?
2: you know, a year down the line when, when they gave up everything to be part of the industry in scare quotes.
1: That was a third of my job in video games. Yeah. was yeah. was like, on a regular hey, basis, I'm guessing. Yeah. Hey, 200 people. I'm the only employee of Nickelodeon left in San Francisco. You, this is all your last day. Bye. Like, I literally wow. had to do that. And, you know, I didn't get to announce oh, I'm the only employee. I got asked. Someone said, what about you? And I was like, I'm still employed here, mm. you know, and if you can imagine two floors of a building one day is a vibrant hive of creative people making cool stuff. And then the next day, Oh, by the way, I get a phone call. You have to fire everybody tomorrow. Mm. Fucking awful. And just a terrible feeling. And and they're all great people. And yeah, every, yeah, like you were saying, it's like every other day in video games it's, you know, so I wouldn't want that in RPGs, and you know, above all, like the the illusion that there is such a thing. This this is a bigger illusion that I see a lot is that there is such a thing as a stable anything hmm. it, it is is just so silly to me now. Like I had a really early lesson in it. My dad uh, worked for Bell Telephone, which was about as eternal as you can imagine a company being, and he was highly placed. And they got split up, and you know, he was basically his entire firm was made redundant a couple of years later, but he was offered a deal saying you can get half your retirement now if you leave. And he took it. He was the only person who took it. And he was like, nothing's indestructible, dude, like nothing. And he was dead on. Everybody just got shown the door, no retirement, you know, a couple of years later. And from then, my thinking has always been, all human industry, all, everything is just an illusion to make it pretend to seem eternal. That's what we are, that's schools, jobs, everything. That's, oh, journalism. I'm sure that will be solid in 30 years. <laughs> not, not so much. Um, are you trying you know, to make, so, an Impossible Landscapes campaign? Now are we in the game? <laughs> <laughs> <Not> with, uh... <laughs> but it, it's, it's you know, I, I like to kind of show this to, to the creatives out there. When they say, but I, you know, I want to have a solid job that I can work at and then do this. And I'm like, dude, in this, making these things, you may not be paid well, but if you structure your life right, you don't need a lot of money to live and you'll be much happier Uh, versus I'm going to be miserable for 55 hours a week in exchange for a barely sustainable salary, which could end at any time. Mm -hmm. That's a choice. You can do either of those things. Um, But I know a lot of people default to the old thinking of 25 and retire, which is just a fiction for most people. I try and kind of show creatives that, yeah, it sucks to live on ramen noodles and Coca-Cola. But if you're making what you want to make and you're happy about it and you don't have a lot of costs, that can be an attractive thing to do instead of, you know, suffering at Starbucks. Uh, sure. For for no no happiness, you know. So I guess
0: to sort of we're getting towards the end of the hour, so we'll have to wrap up, sure. to it, unfortunately. But no, no. Um, just thinking about um, I don't want to use all agile developer terms and stuff and minimal viable projects or anything like that. But
1: <laughs> you just what did?
0: <laughs> but I did. Now dropped it in there. I guess that's when when's a product good enough? Like for for a new you've looked at all these two hundred odd people stuff, and I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, me and Baz are working on a snarer at the minute that we just keep going over and over and over again, even though it's essentially done and hasn't changed for a week. And that sort of thing. (laughs) But (laughs) you keep finding the old typo and redoing it. Um, So, I Dream, obviously you said you don't release something until it meets your exacting standards and all that kind of stuff. But for people getting something out the door, for these new people who are trying to release the first product, like, at what point do you consider something... Should they consider putting something out I guess? I know you can't speak universally, but... There's yeah, I'm kind of yeah. kind of uh, there between you saying, you know, you won't release something until you know it, it's going to be beautiful. And yeah, probably people have got a right stuff and get it out of door. So, like, where, where's the balance yeah.
1: on that line? I guess. Yeah, it's it, it's a really tough one. So the, every creative, uh, no matter the stripe or the job or whatever, they, they kind of develop a sense of what they think is good over time, and and it differs from creative to creative. Some people are really focused on the visual, some are. Uh, You know, I tend to be focused on the feeling that the whole product kind of gives you. I'm obsessed with when you flip through the book, you know, do you get a mood just kind of being in the book? And so for me, it's a gut check now. And that's something learned over many years. It's not like tomorrow, if you've never done this, you just go, okay, I'm going to have a gut check. And it just doesn't work like that. It's, It's slowly accrues in you until you can glance at something and go, that looks put together. And that doesn't. And it's a very high level. It's very subjective. It's very floaty. I'm really lucky, I think, because my like <laughs> the products I build, I build for me. This sounds incredibly greedy and and very selfish and weird. But like I wrote Impossible Landscapes for me. I didn't write it for the people reading the book. And that that sounds awful, I know. But it's really not. It, it I'm lucky in that my... Obsessions and my kind of feeling of what's done and what's good kind of seem to line up with a large percentage of people's vision of the same thing. And that's more luck than anything else. It's more like sources of input that went in my brain when I was a kid than, you know, formalizing like, well, step three or all this, all the text good, step four. It's more like I look at it, I read it in Impossible Landscapes case. I read it like 300 times or it was just a nightmare. It was just kind of like, you know, if they come in with a syringe with the pages in it, I would have been like, okay, I know it's, I know it's time. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a gut check. It's a, it's a feel uh, for me. Um, For other people, they're more formulaic. They're more checklist oriented. They want to know I've done the proofing. Uh, you know, the layout's done. I check for errors. I check for continuity and flow errors. Here's the six check marks I got to hit before I think this book is ready to go. Shane's, I think, I, I'm not speaking out of turn. I don't really know. But I think Shane's more on that side of the, of the fence. And it's good because, holy fuck, if no one was paying attention to that, we'd be miserable all the time. It's only a matter of time before I get my copy of Impossible Landscapes back and there's a typo on the first page <laughs> I look at. That's just how it works. So yeah, I mean, my, my overarching kind of comment on that is only you will know when your work is, is ready. And it's vitally important that you are willing to fail. You have to recognize the reticence to release for quality versus the reticence to release for fear of being judged. And those things get they become like, you know, they collapse into a confluence where people can't tell them apart, where they're just kind of secretly. If I let it out, people will give it one star and they're going to hate me. Um, And, you know, past a certain point, you just kind of have to accept that that's a possibility. Failure. This is another big thing that I don't feel a lot of the kids that I speak to get is that there isn't a magic formula where you go from A to success, without failure being an option in there failure is always an option and in fact if you're younger you will fail more probably Uh, and that's a good thing you should fail and recognize those failures and kind of go i'm not going to do that again that's kind of what the failure is there for and that's how you build these kind of internal judgments on whether you think a product is good or not it's like i i remember when i learned you know don't put all the text justified because people think that looks like crap. I learned that on that product. Good stuff. Right. I think we are now finally at time.
0: So uh, I'm going to have to let you go. been a pleasure to have you on the show again.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. It was great to talk to you guys. Sorry sorry to get to talk more. Yeah. That's thanks, right.
2: Dennis. Amazing as always, mate.
1: Oh, thanks. So that
0: was our interview with Dennis Detwiller,
2: or interview part two, uh, a, a brilliant and knowledgeable guest as always, Buzz. I know, amazing, love talking to Dennis, he's definitely one of my favourite guests that we ever get on uh, The man is just absolutely full of gaming gold, as far as war story is concerned, as far as advice is concerned um, And just really glad to be talking to him as Impossible Landscapes is hitting people's inboxes now And it will be on their gaming shelves in a couple of months, so it looks like a really good thing to have
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll
2: give it a skim in the sort of
0: black and white printer-friendly type version that they've handed out, but I'm looking forward to the book, because that'll be full of all these great art as well. So that's exciting. So, yes, thank you again, loyal listeners, for tuning in once more. Thank you, of course, to all our patrons, uh, glorious and generous as you are, you help keep us on the airwaves. Uh, I bought a new microphone. I don't know if you can tell or not,
2: but if you can, thanks. You (laughs) spend the money to help do that. And if you can't, I don't know what to tell you. And if mine (laughs) sounds terrible then we need to buy me a new microphone <coughs> and you know how best to achieve that. Uh, I spent my money on a layout program, which our patrons should see the difference with. The happy patron that goes out every month is our own little uh, thank you zini to our patrons and uh, it's gone full color. Great news for all readers. And uh, that's, uh, that's going from strength to strength. So uh, on that note, thank you ever so much, patrons, as always. You don't have to be a patron, of course, to send us any content or any ideas or anything you want us to cover Either on the podcast when we're talking or in the contents of the Happy Patron zini that we produce. We've already been uh, been honoured to have a couple of excellent submissions from some of our patrons and we would love to see some more as well. So get in touch with the usual channels. Yep, yeah, it's always good to have a
0: reader's letter to answer. So you can find the podcast, of course, at whatwiththesmartpartydo.com, where if you flick through the back catalogue, you can find the original Dennis Deathwiller interview, as well as with people like Sandy Peterson and Kim Ralston and all kinds of other special guests, as, long as, as well as rather, our advice and other tidbits. And of course, you can hit us up on Twitter at the underscore smart underscore party or at Bass Stevens,
2: uh, and many other forums exist too. Thanks very much everyone. We'll see you soon on What Would The Smart Party Do? Bye for now.